As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. That's a big yawn. Are you okay? <laughs> You've had today off. What are you yawning for? I know. I, did, I have had two naps so far today. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's cutting way back for you. And... Right. Yeah. No. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, um, I get super jacked up about it being spring and I have all these ideas and I kind of hop around. I did the running man for a significant uh, number of minutes this morning. Which, by the way, she does every time she eats a sandwich. Not every time. Every time. And uh, there were geese here, and then that giant uh, stork bird, whatever it is, showed up. And so I was very excited about that. I think I wore myself out with excitement about birds. <laughs> okay. We got a message from Amy on Facebook, and <laughs> it made me chuckle here. here. Here it is. I was super excited when returning from vacay, and I had like four episodes to binge listen to while delivering the mail. I did, however, get funny looks from the elderly lady who happened to be outside when I pulled pulled up to her mailbox and Kat screamed, it's not dick meat. (laughs) (laughs) You guys are the best. Thanks for getting me through boring days in the mail car. What what is that saying for the post office? Neither sleet nor rain nor dick meat. (laughs) Something like that. Yeah. Prevent the delivery of the U.S. mail. Yeah. I think that's what originally it was written as. Absolutely. All right, I go first today. As you, I'm sure, know by now, we live in Maine. We live in Bangor, Maine. The state of Maine has a reputation for being kind of uh, creepy, and mostly because of Stephen King. Sure. But there is a history here of strange and sometimes paranormal experiences, and I'm going to share one of those with you today. Ooh, shit, girl. And it's something that's particularly close to me because it happened in literally my neck of the woods. This is the Allagash affair. Ooh. Have you heard of this? You've heard of this. The UFO mm-hmm. or unexplained, whatever you want to call it. I'm not familiar with it. I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know anything about it. Well, the Allagash. Gorgeous. Yes. It, Untouched. It is. Now, Maine is a huge state. 
and the upper one-third of it pretty much is just unspoiled wilderness. It is exactly the way it always has been, and it's not easy to get into the heart of the Allagash even today. It involves some pretty credible witnesses, four people, they were all buddies, uh, one guy, Charlie <laughs> Follett's. Just a heads up, if you are a person in Maine, you don't have friends, you've got buddies. Yeah, they're all buds, buddies, <laughs> buddies. One guy's name is Charlie Foltz, Chuck Rack, Jack and Jim Wiener. They, they're twins, actually. They are from the Boston area, or were at the time, and they were students studying art. They were majoring in art. So on August the 20th of 1976, they decided that they were going to go camping, the Allagash. They leave Boston. They go to an area called Millinocket, which is right in the heart of uh, the state of Maine. Side note. Yes. If you don't mind. No, please. Millinocket. If someone could please bring in some capital to Millinocket, this would be a great place for like a destination outdoor adventure place. I'm talking woodland zip lines, kayak rentals, um, rafting, and make it like a like a camp where you can stay and you can have like your weekend of fun, zip around in your little skidoos or whatever. Please bring this thing to me. Thank you. The end. Millinocket is on the doorstep of Baxter State Park. It's and and the and the big draw in Baxter State Park is Mount Katahdin. People go, they go fishing there, they go hiking there. It's about a mile high. It's a big, it's a big mountain. Well, from Millinocket, these guys chartered a private plane and flew into the Allagash about uh, 90 miles into the Allagash from that, that particular area landed in um, an area called Chamberlain Lake because there were four of them. They had to, they had to shuttle them in two at a time. So two guys were flown in and dropped off. They dragged their canoes to the side of the uh, the lake. The plane took off, brought in the uh, other two guys an hour later, dropped them off. And then they had a rendezvous point for three or four days later when they were done with their camping trip. Mm-hmm. So from Chamberlain Lake, they paddled toward a portage area that would lead them to another area called Eagle Lake, which was their final destination. The winds were so strong that uh, they were having a difficult time paddling into into the wind. So they decided that night to pitch camp where they were, let the winds die down, and the next day they would uh, continue on their, their journey. But where they pitched their tent, they were right in this oncoming wind. It was, it was, it was impossible for them to, uh, to set up camp there. Mm. They looked across the lake. They saw another uh, campsite. They saw a fire over there. So they paddled over. It was about dusk. And they camped with these other people who had two adult sons that were still out on the lake and they did not know where they were and they were becoming worried about them. They were sure. like 18, 19 years old. And so these four guys from Boston, they grab their binoculars and they go out and start helping these other campers try to locate their two sons. It's getting dark at this point. They're standing out there with their binoculars and one of them sees this small ball of light and it's coming across the trees left to right and it's moving quite quickly but then it would stop and it would like pulsate and then it would go the other direction again and I thought that's odd that's yeah. that's weird then they located the uh the kids they settled down for the night and that was that okay 
So the next morning they break camp, they get their canoes, they get back out on the lake again and they start paddling. Same thing. Wind is still pretty high Mm -hmm. and they're trying to get to this portage point where they can cross over to Eagle Lake, their ultimate destination. After paddling furiously for about an hour and not seeing any of the uh, landscape go by, they they were just stationary. Yeah. They got out and they just started dragging their canoes till they got to the uh, portage point. Then they crossed over, got into Eagle Lake, made camp for that night across from an area called uh, Smith's Brook. Okay. Keep in mind, this is a part of the state where most of it doesn't even have names. There aren't like town names up there. It's TR. It's like... There are territories. Yeah, it's like uh, T7R4. Right. When I was a kid, we had a camp in, I think it was like TR42 or something like that. Yeah. Territories and ranges. And and that's what we're talking about. These are areas that have no towns. No. Not within, you know, 100 miles in some cases. It is wilderness. In fact, one of the areas that they wanted to go to was a place that uh, Henry David Thoreau had camped when he made his main trip. It's actually called the Thoreau Camp. So they're heading in that direction, but they camped that night across from uh, Smith Brook, which they wanted to fish. They build this huge fire. It's becoming dark now. They want to do some night fishing. They build this huge fire. Now, as you were saying, this is such a remote area. There are no lights out there. And in an interview I saw, they they were talking about how you can hold your hand six inches in front of your face Mm -hmm. and not see anything. It is pitch black out there. And it is so quiet. They say you can't hear frogs. You don't hear crickets. It's just dead silence. You can actually hear people whispering up the river at a different campsite. Oh, I don't like that at all. Because I'm used to the forests of Maine where it's noisy yeah, yeah. because of the wildlife, because you can hear all the, the night creatures moving around. It's comforting to know that there are night creatures. No night creatures equals terrifying. <laughs> yeah. So they're going out on the lake. It's dark. They know they're not going to be able to see their way back. So they build a huge bonfire and they build it with the idea that it's going to burn for three or four hours. They use big trunks of trees, Mm. about eight, 10 inches thick. It's a huge bonfire built to last. They want to be able to find their way back after several hours of night fishing. So they go out on the on the lake and they paddle across the lake to Smith Pond and they start fishing. Charlie was the first guy to see whatever it was. He said he looked down the lake and coming straight up above the trees was this huge ball of light. And bear in mind, there's nothing out there. Right. And it just kind of came up above the trees and sat there. Didn't move, didn't make any noise. You know, he's like, hey, what the hell is that? And they all look over. And at that point, a beam of light comes out of that ball of light and hits the lake. Like a searchlight kind of thing. Almost like what you'd expect to see coming out of a helicopter. Sure. But this was not a helicopter. This was a round ball of light that made no noise not far from where they were. Right. So Charlie grabs his flashlight. And it's one of those old square battery camping flashlights. Mm -hmm. And he flashes the SOS sign because it was the only signal that he knew. Three short, three long, three short, whatever. Bump, 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 bump. Yep. Bump, bump, bump. Is that right? I don't. It's that way or the other. I'm not sure. <laughs> if I got stranded, I would probably signal OSO and they wouldn't come to get me. I would die because of a spelling error. As soon as he flashed that light, the searchlight type thing, the beam of light stopped 
and it immediately started tracing itself across the water toward the canoe. Well, that kind of freaked them out. So they start, they start paddling. They're on the complete opposite side of this huge lake from where their campsite is. They start paddling and this light is getting closer and closer. The next thing they knew, their canoe was banging up onto the bank of where their camp was. What? And they didn't remember getting there. So they did they lose time or did they trans like teleport? Well, they got out of the canoes, stunned. Sure. Obviously. They walk over to their campfire that had been built 30 minutes before to burn for four to five hours, and it was just embers. Wow. It had all burned down to just embers. At that point, they were like, do we rebuild the fire? And everybody's like, no, we're just really tired. Let's just go to bed. You know, so they just went to sleep. And the next morning they woke up and they're like, what the hell happened that? What was that all about? And obviously it was a pretty strange situation. They wanted to know what was this light? What was the thing tracking us? Why didn't it make any noise? How did we get to the uh, beach as quickly as we did? None of this makes any sense. So they go back to Boston. They tell their story. People are like, yeah, okay, Uh (laughs) sure. That's a good one. (laughs) Did a little camping in northern maine yeah, yeah, huh yeah okay in another interview i read he claimed that they only took eight beers in with them i find that suspicious right yeah, who like goes a camping? six pack and two loose ones yeah, that doesn't make what, any sense yeah i don't know they said uh, there was no drinking why were you camping i don't yeah. know what's the point really <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're not out there drinking <laughs> come on Anyway, so a couple of years go by and they don't, uh, you know, just kind of, they stop telling the story, except they talk about it amongst themselves. And then one of the uh, twins, and I don't remember if it was Jack or Jim, but one of them was inspecting a home and fell down where there was supposed to be a stairway. He fell down and landed uh, a story in a seating position, which jammed his spine up into his head (gasps) a little bit. Oh. And it gave him some uh, brain damage and it caused epilepsy. And at that point, he was having all kinds of nightmares. He kept dreaming of these creatures coming into his room at night and performing all kinds of weird experiments on him. What? Obviously, his thought was, well, this is something to do with my my injury. I've had a brain injury and, you know, this would make sense. However, his brother unbeknownst to him, his twin brother in another town was also having the same nightmares that these creatures were coming into his room at night and performing these tests on him. Well, now they are twins. Yes. So they could be sharing, you know, how twins do that. So the twin that had been injured uh, went to see his doctor about these nightmares that he was having which sound a lot like sleep terrors, like we night talked terrors. night terrors, like yeah. we talked about before. And his doctor, I guess, knew about these guys and their experience with the UFO a, a few years before. And he started making some connections here. And he said, you know what? This is kind of unorthodox, but I know a guy does hypnotic regression. So why don't you go do that? So he goes and he does the hypnotic regression. At the same time, he finds out that his twin is having these night terrors as well. So his twin goes to the same guy sure. and gets a hypnotic regression. They did not share information with each other. Charlie, the other guy, went and had a hypnotic regression too, all independent of each other. 
And each person told almost the same identical story that they were taken up in this beam. And when they became conscious, they were strapped down to a surgical table. There was all sorts of futuristic Uh, what appeared to be medical devices. There was a square box over his chest that emitted this same color of light that the tracking beam was, but he said it was like fabric that it, he could see the edges of it and Mm -hmm. he could feel the weight of it on him, but it was light. He could see through it. He got the impression that he was being scanned medically. They all had similar experiences. Now, after they were brought out of the hypnotic regression, the hypnotist asked them to draw what they saw. And so they drew these faces of these creatures and they were almost, I mean, everybody has a different drawing style, but they were the same creatures. So you put them side by side and you go, okay, wow, that's, that's pretty wild. They all looked like, um, kind of like ants, but without the antennae. And they had four fingers instead of five, but they were split down the middle. So the palm of the hand acted like a thumb, an opposable digit in itself. And they all drew it exactly like that wow now the other guy chuck rack he was kind of the the outsider on the he he experienced this but was not really embracing the whole alien thing Hmm. quite like they were sure and so there was a bit of a falling out between these guys well that's a big experience to have regardless of what the reality of it was There's big feelings connected with not knowing what happened to you and being confused and concerned. And then you throw in a brain injury. And, uh, you know, I I get that. And some people just don't want to discuss things that they don't understand that scare them. It's interesting to note that they all took lie detector tests and all passed lie detector tests. Sure. Didn't we discover that lie detector tests are pretty much worthless, though? That's certainly open to debate. Okay. Um, (laughs) And they actually did it twice. One was administered by a former Secret Service agent. Recently, the St. John Times, which is the newspaper in Fort Kent, Maine, which is right on the doorstep of the Allagash. It's where your dad lives. It's where my dad lives. That's why this is so close to home for me. They contacted these guys and Chuck Rack, he seemed very angry about the whole thing. He he sure. claimed that they all made it up, that it was all just for money and that um, the other three guys are lying. And so the reporter said, so you didn't see anything? And he said, no, I saw something and I don't know what it was. And his description of it lined up with what the other guys said. Mm-hmm. His claim is that he doesn't believe that they were abducted. Got it. At one of his doctor's appointments, uh, I think it was Jim Weiner, they found a lump under his skin and they went to uh, biopsy it and it was a little piece of metal. And they said it looked like it had been there for quite some time. And this mm-hmm. was years after the abduction. So they sent it off to uh, a lab for medical testing. From there, it was sent to the Pentagon. It was taken possession by a colonel in the Air Force And now they have no idea where it is. Interesting. Now, as I mentioned, I'm from that area. And I can add a little something to this that maybe you don't know or haven't seen on the interwebbles. The interwebby nets? The interwebble nettles. In that area, in northern Maine, there used to be an Air Force base. It's called Loring Air Force Base. Right. It was part of the uh, Strategic Air Command during the Cold War. It was decommissioned in the... um, 
early 90s. My mother's mother worked there as a nurse for a period yep. of time. It was it was huge. It was a huge Air Force base in the middle of the woods. And it was the closest strategic Air Force base in the continental United States to Russia. Right. Or the Soviet Union at the time. So when were, when growing up as kids, we were always like, well, if there's a war, we're the first to go. Yeah. You know. Valid. Well, in 1975, the 27th of October, an unidentified object was uh, spotted hovering near the secure weapons area of uh, the Air Force Base, which is in a town called Limestone. A message was sent to a National Military Command Center in, in Washington saying, quote, the AC aircraft definitely penetrated Loring Air Force Base northern perimeter and on one occasion was within 300 yards of the munition storage area perimeter. It made several appearances over the next uh, couple of days in that area. And the official story after this was all done was it was not a UFO. It was an incident involving a helicopter in a base readiness security drill. So they're having this base readiness security drill but nobody knew about it. Mm. That's what they were trying to... T- like, you would fly a helicopter in over a Cold War era military weapons facility and just, not tell the guys... Just and see the, how it goes. Yeah, just see how it goes. Sure. So I don't know about that. Okay, that's public knowledge. I was up visiting my family in Fort Kent. Right. And I was at... Uh, the local diner, which is where you get all your information in a town like that. Deborah's Doris's. Doris's. That's right. And I was sitting there in the booth and there were a couple of guys in the booth next to me and they were talking about this. And one of them said, no, this isn't common information, but you know, my dad used to be a pilot at Loring Air Force Base. And the guy's like, yeah, he goes, well, they talk about that UFO experience that they had there in 1975, but then nobody ever talks about the one that happened in 1976. Ooh, this is when you just pulled your chair yeah, up to the table yeah, went, and you were like, tell me more. Uh-huh. Let me let me buy you a coffee there, bub. <laughs> they do have great coffee. They do. He said that in August of 1976, when this event supposedly occurred, Loring Air Force Base picked up on their radar system some flying anomalies in the Eagle Lake area. Not one, but a couple. Okay. And they scrambled jets to go out and check on what it was. And they never determined what it was because they couldn't find anything. It disappeared. But nobody talks about that. It's not in any of the uh, public records. I learned about that in a diner in northern Maine from a guy whose dad used to be a pilot at Loring Air Force Base. Interesting. Take that for what it's worth, but I thought it was pretty cool. And the fact that they had the UFO sightings in Loring before, the year before, kind of all fits together. It really does. That's interesting. I, you know, I mean, I tend to be pretty skeptical about these types of events. Um, But what always piques my interest is an effort to hide information. And so that's particularly interesting to me. Yeah. Got to get up to Doris's, Bob. If you can't believe what you learn eavesdropping on diners at Doris's in Fort Kent, who can you believe? <laughs> and now it's time for That Thing in the Middle. The Thing in the Middle today, we are talking about unusual toppings on your pizza. Yeah, yeah. These are from around the world. Did you say yeah, yeah? It's like a strange form of Tourette's. Pizza-related excitement, Tourette? Y- yeah, yeah. Number five, crocodile. What? Yeah, in Australia. Uh, occasionally, pizza parlors will uh, pop on some crocodile. I might try that after a while. Number four, from Africa, bananas and curry pizza. 
It also includes cashew nuts. Bananas, curry, and cashew nuts. Yeah. It's all the rage in Africa. All right. Minus the bananas, I can get on board. You think? I'll have your bananas. Oh, love love it. it. Number three. Strawberries and salmon. Just no. Nope. Number two. Marshmallows and chocolate. Uh, it's a s'mores pizza. That's wrong. Doesn't have, like, pizza sauce, right? God, I hope not. And number one, popular in Sweden, reindeer meat. Reindeer meat pizza. Served at Christmas. Donner party for one, right? (laughs) Am I right? (laughs) I see I'm mixing all kinds of references (laughs) there. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something, if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores, and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, and they live about 3,000 miles away, and my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life... Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. You're listening to The Box of Oddities. 
Nothing better to do? Okay, girl, what you got for me? Let us talk today, shall we? About the great Victorian beard craze. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. And uh, some. Yeah. Uh, all right, we'll get there. Okay, here we go. <laughs> Up until the 19th century, mid 19th century, I should say, facial hair had been banned from the British Army. Now, along comes the Crimean War which was a military conflict fought from October of 1853 to February of 1856. The Russian Empire lost to an alliance of the Ottoman Empire, France, Britain, and Sardinia. Okay, so the Crimean War happened, and the freezing temperatures in the regions that they were fighting, along with the difficulty in getting shave cream to the <laughs> troops, <laughs> led to a necessary change in the rules. And so beards were no longer banned. They were probably considered to be the style of a hero. That's exactly right. The next line is, beards were the mark of a hero. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> um, yeah, it was it was the thing. If you had been away fighting for your country, for what was right, rah, 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 um, then you had a beard. And men, of course, who had never seen military action were like, yes, I'm growing a beard, too. This is amazing. Uh, within a few years, it was almost impossible to see a beard free male face in Victorian Britain. Except, of course, in Buckingham Palace, where Prince Albert refused to conform to fashion and maintained a very smooth face. Well, he was the prince. He could do whatever he wanted. I imagine there was some old queeny influence there, too. Queen Victoria is like, like a, I don't, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't want This no. is a fad. Your, your chin whiskers tickle my inner thighs. Well, she was saucy. Remember that story you did on her? Anyway. She was way into that stuff. Goodness. And good for her, I say. So according to the Smithsonian, doctors were actually beginning to encourage men to wear beards as a means of warding off illness. The Victorian obsession with air quality saw the beard promoted as a sort of like pollution filter. <laughs> like, a, like an air filter. Yes. It's a face filter. A thick beard, it was reasoned, could capture the impurities before they got inside your body. Also your soup. <laughs> Others thought that it was a means of relaxing the throat, keeping your, your throat warm, uh, especially for those involved in public speaking. Hmm. They were encouraged to have uh, facial hair that covered their throat to keep their throat relaxed so that uh, their voice would sound nice. <laughs> also, some doctors were recommending men grow beards to avoid sore throats. It was like wearing a scarf all the time. Sure. Of course, keep in mind that uh, a study in behavioral ecology points out that hair on the face and body are actually potentially localized breeding grounds for uh, disease-carrying ectoparasites. Yeah, uh, so yeah. probably... Probably that was not the best choice. Not a good idea. In America, around this same time, the, the mid-19th century, the return of the beard began because they were excited by the fashion plates from British magazines. And American men also were ditching the razor for a more practical reason. Although the so-called safety razor had been around since the 1770s, they were difficult to use and often dangerous. And people were dying 
from using the safety razor. No kidding. In fact, John Thoreau, brother of Henry David Thoreau. No. What is the, what are the chances? The weird synchronicities between our stories. This is blowing my mind. Okay. So, sorry, I was just so excited to get to this point. Um, John Thoreau was the brother of American writer Henry David Thoreau. And in the winter of 1841, while taking part in his daily shave, John Thoreau cut himself with a razor and a few days later came down with lockjaw and died. Henry David Thoreau was actually with him, holding him in his arms as he died of lockjaw. I did not know this. Now, it is reported that his brother's death devastated him so that he didn't talk to his family. He didn't write in his journals for weeks. And Thoreau's good friend, Ralph Waldo Emerson, suggested that he go spend some time in the woods alone near a pond called Walden. No kidding. No kidding. Right? This is changing my whole life. Because, I mean, Walden. If you haven't read it, I'm sorry. If you haven't read Walden, (laughs) this is a tangent that I did not intend. But I'm putting it on our Goodreads page because it is a must read. Please read Walden. I have read it um, four or five times. And I have the audio book. And sometimes I'll just put it on and fall asleep to it. (sighs) It's just wonderful. It's just wonderful. Okay. I'm anyway, sorry. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Okay. Um, do, 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 do. Okay. In 1861, Our American Cousin by Tom Taylor hit its London premiere. That was the play that Lincoln was watching when he was assassinated. That's exactly correct. Um, that was like four years later, but yes. Um, and one of the characters in that play, his name was... Lord Dundreary, he was a comical character and he had like, whoa, side whiskers. Uh And so this certain type of facial hair became known as Dundreary's. They were also known as Piccadilly Weepers because the whiskers were worn by the kind of dandy who might be spotted in Piccadilly Square. Oh my goodness. Would you consider mine? No. Piccadilly weepers? Nope. Not no. even a little bit. Not even a little. Now. Baby weepers? Nope. Maybe? No. Mm-mm. Nothing weep like? No. According to the um, American Civil War of 1861 through 1865, the word sideburns was coined as a tribute to Major General Ambrose Burnside, whose bushy mustache had been allowed to connect with his whiskers, and it formed a very thick and impressive unbroken line of hair that kind of went from the bottom of his ears all the way under his nose. It was a pretty snazzy piece of business, I tell you what. That blows my mind. As you know, I'm a Civil War geek. You love wars. I have not heard this. I'm very familiar with Burnside. I had no idea that sideburns came from that. I do know that uh, sex workers in the day are called hookers because General Hooker right. said, you know what? We need to let the troops have their fun. Right. And uh, from what I've heard, the girls who partook in those wartime activities <laughs> yeah. um, did real well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Except for the, you know, syphilis. Right. Minus that part. Yeah. Yeah. No, they were well patronized is what I mean. Oh, yes. There was a, they had like a. 
It was part of the, the they, war effort. Yeah, they, they, they had a number system like at a deli. This is interesting and something that we probably should do a little more. Maybe we could do a thing. I have some diaries of sex workers in Louisiana. I'm sorry. During the Civil War. <laughs> yeah, I should have said it the other way around. You know, there were diaries written by sex workers in the Civil War. They were in Louisiana. I have copies of those on my Kindle. <laughs> it's interesting. Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting topic. Dear diary, I never thought this would happen to me. Anyway, go ahead. <gasps> okay, hold on. There was a saucy magazine that had some sort of yep, like... You're very good. Is that what, the, what Pen, you're referencing? Penthouse, Penthouse Forum. There you go. Tell me, tell refresh me because I I understand what you're saying, but I don't entirely. I'm not making the connection entirely, okay. but I know Penthouse what you're saying. Magazine. Okay. It was it was similar to Playboy magazine, and they had a letters section, like um, where people would write in about their sexual affairs Ew. and activities, and it became almost cliche when because a lot so many of the letters would start, dear Penthouse. I never thought this would happen to me. <laughs> and none of them were actually true, no, right? No, <laughs> none of them were. But I did enjoy the um, the descriptions. Some of them, they tried, some of these people tried to be so poetic. In like their, flowery about it? Yeah. One time, one of the descriptions for a man's larger member was, the person said, it, it reminded them of a baby's arm holding an apple. <laughs> That's poetry. I mean, I get liking that. My, when I was a young person, I used to get like Seventeen magazine, and um, I can't remember what other ones, but you know those types of mm -hmm. magazines. Mm -hmm. And there was always a part where it was stories of how these young girls were terribly embarrassed by things. And it was like, I had my boyfriend over and then my dog ran out with a tampon in his mouth. And it was like, <laughs> I've never been more embarrassed. I thought I was going to die. And that was always my favorite part. So I can see how the diary part would sure. be kind of a... Oh, they had spinoffs. They had books. Yeah? Know, yeah. I mean, I'm told. Oh, that would be interesting, I think. Yeah. Um, anywhere, where was I? Oh, yes, beards. In 1842, Charles Dickens had traveled to North America for the first time, and he was introduced to a lot of other writers, including Edgar Allan Poe, and they remained in correspondence. Right around this time, Poe and Dickens also began experimenting with facial hair. Oh, okay. Maybe other things, too. I don't know. Oh, my God. Can you imagine that love affair? Anyway, okay, sorry. That would be poetic. Yeah, dear diary. <laughs> I never thought this would happen to me. <laughs> the telltale dick. No, I'm sorry. Okay, that was completely inappropriate. Okay. Quoth the raven. A little more. <laughs> just, a, just a little more. <laughs> oh, man, we are... Well, we've we're doing horrible, horrible yeah. things right now. Okay. Um, in eighteen forty four, Dickens wrote to one of his friends about his new passion, and this is how the letter went: "The mustaches are glorious, glorious. I have cut them short and trimmed them a little at the ends to improve their shape. They are charming, charming. Without them, life." Would be a blank. 
Wow. <laughs> he loved facial hair. He really did. Uh, in the 1860s, pictures of Dickens were hugely popular in the States. People bought them like they were pancakes. And... Uh, Got any pancakes? No, we're sold out. Give me some Dickens portraits. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the style of his facial hair spawned imitators all over the world, copying what has become known as his door knocker beard, which oh, was yeah. kind of long-ish and thin and through most of, of it. Marley on it. Is it too early in the season for that reference? I thought you meant Bob Marley at first. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that would make perfect sense. Anyway, but then it got wide at the bottom. Of course, during this time, as you can imagine, there were a lot of potions and oils and uh, tinctures available. Mm -hmm. I have a thing for old school uh, medicinal ads. I love them. And um, it was a horrible time because a lot of people took advantage of a lot of people. But also, man, they're neat. Um, Almost all of them had opium. In it. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Obviously, there were lots of, uh, let's say, snake oil yeah, products sure. available for beard growth and coloring, as well as false beards and mustaches, sometimes made from goat hair. Now, according to fizz.org, beards and masculinity were so closely associated in the 19th century that some men resorted to wearing a wig of false mechanical whisper. I'm sorry, of false mechanical whiskers they attached to their face with springs and wires. <laughs> I'm picturing, though, when you say fake beard, like those really cheesy uh, costume beards with the hooks that would go over your ears. Like Python-esque? Yes, very yes. Python-esque. <laughs> uh, as early as 1800, a patent was obtained from Thomas Bowman of New Bond Street for making wigs or perruques. Um, not sure if that's how it's said. Uh, but anyway, it... Fake face hair with fasteners made of a certain elastic compressed steel or springs and also with other flat springs or wires made of steel for closer adhesion of the points where the whiskers met the head and face. So they were like, you know, when back in the day, the ladies wore the big dresses that were built with these steel hoops. Right, right. To create that illusion of the big bottom half. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's kind of like they built a steel beard and then covered it in goat hair. Mm -hmm. It was real weird. The device... It's like a clip-on tie. The device covered, quote, the head, behind the ears, the forehead, the temple, the top of the cheekbones... I'm sorry. And down some of the cheek. Sweetie, do you like daddy's new beard? Yeah, but you smell like goats. <laughs> I'm never kissing you again. Dr. Withy also had discovered examples of tinted wigs in Victorian times with whiskers attached. So um, it, there were a lot of opportunities for people to buy all in one head hair options no. that were like like a hood it's like a follicle with, hood <laughs> i don't even know how to describe it anyway it was probably an awful time yeah moving right along you know with the with the with the hair hoods and the dysentery <laughs> right dysentery only good 
and the Oregon Trail. Now along comes American inventor King Camp Gillette. In 1895, he came up with the idea of the first disposable razor blade. And it took a lot of time, and uh, he, eventually he perfected his invention. But in 1901, he managed to persuade others to try it out, and that was the disposable razor. It was a sensation. The patent was granted in 1904, and Gillette's simple invention spawned a multi-million dollar industry for the company that still bears its name. Yep. Gillette. The best a man can get. There you go. Uh, It also coincided with increased scientific understanding of the existence and spread of bacteria. So people were like, oh, we don't want to hoard germs in our facial hair. And there's this nice and easy way to get rid of our facial hair. Beards became targeted by medical men. And people everywhere were talking about the potential risk that beards carried into the workplace. In fact... In 1902, New York dairymen were banned from having beards. Interesting. So... Did they still ban facial hair at Disney? I don't know. I know for a long time they did, which was ironic because Walt Disney had facial hair. We were just at Epcot not long ago. Yeah. Did you see anyone with beards? Uh, I saw characters with beards, but, you know, like... uh, old-timey musicians in a band from the early 1900s mm. that have, like, you know, time-appropriate uh, facial hair. But sure. I can't... I don't know. I'm picturing them wearing all denim, uh, banging on a bucket. <laughs> okay. Anyway, okay. We're thinking of different things. Okay, I mean, uh, okay. okay. Um, anyway, the fashion for beards, whiskers, and bristling mustaches fell into a serious decline in much of the first half of the 20th century, Um, Not just because of those things that we've already talked about, but also because, and this is really interesting, because the war brought in the beard fashion, and the war took out the beard fashion. World War I. The seal on gas masks would not adhere to those big fake beards the faces that had facial hair oh, okay. so you had to shave your face if a gas mask is was going to work for you well, i think that's a missed opportunity for the fake beard industry to just put it over the gas mask yeah just include it right on the gas mask bearded gas masks yeah well i think that's <laughs> that's an opportunity for us let's not share it with the world okay keep it <laughs> keep it to yourself freak anyway Wars and fashion, I think, is something that we should explore more. Okay. Wars and fashion. I love it. There you go. Beards. The, the Victorian beard craze. The end. Fascinating. Thank you. War brought it in. War took it out. Exactly. Sideburns or... You don't have sideburns. You have mutton chops. Piccadilly... Uh, no. Wid- widows nope. or... Mutton chops. These are mutton chops. Yes, because they're thin at the top and uh, they get fat at the bottom, at the bottom. resembling the shape of a cut okay. of meat. All right. Well, I'm still working on mine. They're glorious. They're coming in nicely, I think. What I like is that um, you have maintained them and you keep trimming them up, but you're letting them fill out. So they're not getting out of control yet. Um, but they are filling in beautifully. Though re- the last couple of times you've shaved, you've really... Well, after the live show... You I brought, tamed the chop yeah, I part. tamed them a bit after the live show. I'm going to have to say publicly, I do not approve. Okay. All right. Well, here's the thing. It looks as though we're going to be doing 
More live shows. Shut up, shut up, shut up. We're not talking about that so yet. So I need to grow my sideburns out. Stop. That'll be, that'll be our code. When I talk about the length of my sideburns, or wait, mutton chops, when I say they're getting bushier, what I mean is we're getting close to doing some more live shows. It's like a secret decoder ring, but nothing like it. We're not even talking about that yet. <clears throat> yes, we are. <laughs> <laughs> We are. <laughs> we are. Yeah, we're going back out on the road. We'll tell you about it later. But, you know, we're in the process of working out details and things. But we're very excited about it. And um, we we really hope that uh, if you weren't able to come see us last time, you'll get a chance this time. And if you have a venue that you'd like us to come to, please, I mean, talk with them. Talk with us. I mean, we want to go everywhere. Yeah. So... If you have ideas, we're not opposed to hearing your ideas. I mean, we don't want to go to like your friend's den, but I'm sure um, it's very nice. I bet shag carpet, paneling on the walls. I dig it, but lots of Thomas Kincaid prints. If you have thoughts, you know, we want to hear them. That we're, that's always the yeah, case. We absolutely. always want to hear it. Yeah. So um, we're very excited. We're going to um, what's the term? ratchet it up a bit <laughs> yeah um and we're gonna be out and about again in the fall so um yes we want to see you and uh maybe you could help make that happen the box of oddities.com is the website curator at the box of oddities.com is our email address you can also find us on all the social media we're at instagram twitter facebook we've got a goodreads page we have a new pets page called the litter box of oddities <laughs> i've also just started a page dedicated solely to hairless cats and bad tiger tattoos. That is filling up quick. <laughs> <laughs> Limited slots on that. Well, that's it for this episode, and we will see you on Monday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. And fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you. And its fate is in your hands. The Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. Do you love history but hate when it's stuffy and boring? Well, look no further and join me, Katie Charlwood, your friend the neighborhood social scientist and reader of books, as I delve into unsolved historical mysteries, murders by gaslight, and of course, women who have been misrepresented through all time. On Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.